Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm joined again as always by Luke Boggs. Luke, it's been a while. How are you doing? Uh, it's been too long, Kyle. I'm doing okay and surviving the uh, first couple days of law school. So yeah, it's all it's all new stuff and a lot of new stuff in the news. Yeah, yeah, we had a, a bit of a break. I've got some longer term projects that I've been working on. Luke has been getting accustomed to law school. So we, we took a week off last week. Uh, but that gave you an extra week to listen to our great conversation with uh, Grace Starling and Aisha Yacoub. If you didn't catch that one, you should scroll up in your feeds and check that one out because we had a, a really great time having them on the show and, and learned a lot about how activism at the Gold Dome works. But to kind of get things back into regular gear this week, we're going to have our usual three topics. Uh, for our first topic this week, we're going to take a national look at the opioid crisis. Um, we've got a guest joining us on the show. It'll be Herman Lopez. He's a reporter at Vox, um, and he's going to give us an overview of you know the opioid crisis nationally, and then we're going to have some subsequent reporting on that crisis here in Georgia. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the North Korea nuclear threat and all of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. Um, we are probably not on the brink of nuclear war with North Korea, but but still something to be concerned about. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to talk about the uh, riots that took place that were that were spurred by uh, an alt right rally of uh, neo Nazis, white supremacists, and KKK members in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is a really important topic. Some something really worth discussing in the current political climate. Um, and unfortunately, it was it was sad news out of Charlottesville this weekend with uh, somebody who somebody lost their life at, at, at this event. But those will be our, th- our three topics for the week. But we'll start with uh, some in the news as we always do. So to just start with my in the news, I picked up on this reporting a few weeks back where we talked about the a conspiracy theory that Fox News had been peddling that Seth Rich, a former DNC staffer, um, he was murdered in what authorities believe was an attempted, like a failed attempted robbery here in Washington, D.C. Uh, during the campaign last year. And there was a conspiracy theory going around that somehow Seth Rich was connected to the DNC leak to WikiLeaks. But that story eventually fell apart and Fox News retracted the story. But just to sort of bookend that, uh, the interesting thing about this is that there is now a lawsuit. A former paid contributor for Fox News who was involved in this story is actually suing Fox News and a wealthy Trump contributor um, alleging that Fox News and this Trump contributor conspired to concoct a story about Seth Rich and put fake quotations into the news about this story and um, basically was trying to use the story as an attempt to distract from the Trump-Russia connections by trying to pawn off this connection of the DNC leak onto Seth Rich. Um, So it's interesting. I can't remember a recent case where where a news organization has been sued about a fake story, particularly from somebody who was a contributor to that story. Uh, but this is, you know, a, an example of really egregious journalism out of Fox News. Um, not something new, but but I think that this was a new level that we had not seen before. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, this story has just been insane from the get go and has been pretty obviously a conspiracy theory. And just the fact that it keeps coming back up and has been a constant sort of rallying cry for some people in the media has been 
really confusing to me. And so, I mean, at this point, I would be not shocked or surprised if it does turn out to be the fact that um, someone higher up in the Trump administration was asking them to keep it going because otherwise I really don't see how there would be enough fuel for the story to continue. Yeah, I mean, part of this lawsuit is that uh, somebody involved in this story actually met with Sean Spicer, former communications director at the White House, um, as a part of this story. And in the the donor that was involved had originally said that Donald Trump himself had actually signed off on some of the details. He's now saying that that's not true. Um, that sounds like a, a boast from a contributor. But yeah, it, this is just a, a bizarre story and one that, you know, Seth Rich's family, he, he was murdered in DC. This isn't something that his family should, should have to be dealing with. But, uh, so is the, the journalism climate in the world of Fox News these days. Um, yeah, with that, we will, we will move on to our first topic of the week. And I'm going to turn it over to a conversation that I had with Herman Lopez last week. Um, so here are uh, Herman and I on the opioid epidemic nationally. All right, so I'm now joined by Herman Lopez. He's a senior writer from Vox.com. He writes at Vox on, on race, crime, drug, and LGBT issues. Uh, Herman, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so just to start out, uh, the opioid epidemic is something that we haven't really covered fully on the show before. So could you just start our listeners off with sort of an overview of what the opioid epidemic is and, and how it all began? Sure. So starting very broadly, the, the most important thing to know is that this is the deadliest drug overdose crisis in U.S. history. Um, more people have died from drug overdoses in the past couple of years than have ever died as, as far as we can see in the re- reported numbers. So to put, put this in context, um, the latest year that we have data for, the we, well, actually, l- let, me, let me go back a little. If we look back uh, the past decade or so, more people have died from drug overdoses than the entire city of Atlanta. That, that's an alarming amount of people dying, obviously, and it's poised to get worse. There was a forecast by Stat News that looked at the next 10 years of the opioid epidemic, and it found that more people will die from just opioid overdoses, not just drug overdoses this time, but just opioid overdoses. More people will die from those than live in Baltimore today. So we're looking at a crisis that is simply unprecedented in terms of drug overdoses. And it began with prescription painkillers. In the 90s, doctors wrote a lot of prescriptions for opioid painkillers because there was this huge push to take pain as a serious medical issue. And pharmaceutical companies um, had these new sexy products out there and they were like, hey, you can prescribe our opioids, they're safe and effective, which obviously turned out not to be true. Uh, Doctors prescribed a lot of these pills and they ended up not just in the hands of patients, but teenagers who like went through their parents' medicine cabinets and the black market because people sold extra pills they had. And from there, people started progressing, since opioid painkillers are really similar to other opioids, uh, if you got addicted to them, it was natural to progress uh, in some ways to heroin or now this other synthetic opioid we're seeing as fentanyl. And, and that's sort of how we've really seen this crisis explode out of control. This transition from just people just taking painkillers to heroin has really made this uh, a big crisis in terms of drug overdoses. You've got some great reporting that we'll link to in our show notes, but you, you talked to a bunch of public health experts about what can be done to address this epidemic. What did you find in, in your discussions with those experts? 
Yeah, so the the biggest thing that they emphasize is that from the jump, we have to acknowledge that addiction is a medical condition. And I know that's something that like people probably hear a lot, but it's not something that has actually translated into the public space that well. Um, I mean, this is something that's well known in in the the addiction field, that it is a medical condition, that it is a disease, and that we have to treat it as a public health issue. But it's not something that we have really done in policy terms. But once you understand that, the keys to actually addressing uh, the crisis based on the experts I talked to were, are essentially to, to take like multiple approaches dealing with this crisis at the, every level. So one is, is treatment. We need more treatment funding. There's not enough treatment funding out there. One study by the Surgeon General, he, last year he, the Surgeon General released a pretty big report on addiction, and he, it found that only 10% of people who qualify for drug use disorders actually get specialty treatment. That's not, that means that as many as 90% of people are not getting the treatment they need. And a lot of that is just because we don't have enough access to treatment, whether due to a lack of insurance or just because there's not enough supply. And the, so the big, one of the big pieces is obviously treatment. The other is prevention, which means we need to start really reeling back these painkillers that we have just prescribed too much of them in the past few years. And we had to pull this back. We had to do it in an intelligent way that acknowledges some people do need these painkillers or some chronic pain patients, even though these opioids are not supposed to be a first line treatment for chronic pain. They, for a few chronic pain patients, they actually are a good sense of relief. Like they provide the only sense of relief that they might get, but we ha still have to reel back the, those prescriptions. And the, the last really big peg of this is that is harm reduction meaning we have to do things like clean, uh, like needle exchange programs or um, supervised injection facilities, these kinds of things where we, we really um, make sure to take steps that, like some people are going to use drugs anyway. That's an unfortunate reality we live with. And that means we have to take steps to make sure those people aren't dying from the drug, drugs they're doing. And, and that's what some of these other ideas are, are meant to address. So um, I, I work in healthcare policy, as folks who listen to the show would know, we, we talk a lot about the Affordable Care Act and, and health insurance coverage on the show. So I have a pretty big bias towards health insurance coverage as a solution to this and, and a lot of other healthcare issues. So what role do you think health insurance coverage plays? And is there anything that you've noticed in your reporting about different kinds of health insurance coverage, whether private health insurance through an employer or Medicare or Medicaid. How important is that um, as a part of this multi-pronged solution to deal with this problem? It's, it's a fairly big deal. So uh, depending on which state you look at, the amount of funding that Medicaid does for some of these, the top of the line opioid treatments, like medication assisted treatment, which is when you take um, when, when you're using like these medications uh, such as methadone or buprenorphine or naltrexone, and these drugs essentially reduce cravings for opioids, um, and they're, they're a successful way to treat opioids. Some studies find that they reduce mortality among opioid addiction patients by as much as half or more, which is very good. Imagine if we had a medication that reduced deaths by heart disease by half or more, we would think that's amazing. But in depending on which state you look at, uh, Medicaid pays for about a quarter or more of medication-assisted treatment across the state, showing that there's like a huge need for this kind of service. But it, historically, what we've seen insurance uh, plans do, both public and private, is 
often not treat addiction as a serious medical issue. They won't pay for the treatment. They'll, they'll, if they do pay for the treatment, it might have like huge deductibles, co-payments. I mean, that sort of thing that we've seen um, time and time again with, with mental health services in general as well, because these services, insurance plans tend to see them as very expensive. So they'll try to do everything they can to avoid covering and paying for them. The Affordable Care Act actually, and some previous federal laws as well, tried to make big strides to create what what experts call parity between mental health and uh, other health services. The law is not as well enforced as it could be, though, so we still see some of those problems today, but but it's a big part of of this issue. So your reporting also raises another really interesting idea, one that I think some people would consider pretty provocative, and that's using prescription heroin, giving prescriptions for heroin to people who, um, you know, who have addictions, who I guess aren't effectively treated with other methods. In Georgia, we've had a really difficult ongoing conversation about medical marijuana in the state. That's a Mm -hmm. conversation that keeps hitting roadblocks, um, but sort of progress is made a little bit and a little bit more each year. Um, But why would we prescribe heroin to somebody? um, And what role do you think that would play in addressing this issue? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it definitely sounds like a very, um, this is one of the harm reduction ideas that I alluded to earlier. And it's one of the things that like, it's definitely going to sound provocative to anyone. I mean, we're dealing with a problem of heroin addiction. Why would you give somebody heroin? I can totally understand where somebody is coming from. But at the same time, we've seen this in other countries, Canada being one of them. I actually visited Vancouver to see their prescription heroin facility earlier this year. And the thinking is that Again, unfortunately, some people are going to use uh, heroin for whatever reason. It's um, basically guaranteed that some people are always going to do that, no matter how many public health services we provide. And the thinking is, well, at least we can put them in this facility, give them a safe source of heroin, and meaning it won't be laced with fentanyl or something else that will heighten the chances of overdose. And in that setting, we can at least guarantee that this person is taking a safe source of heroin. And on top of that, it's going to be a source of heroin that they won't have to commit crimes to obtain. They won't have to steal. With uh, They won't have to scavenge like trash cans and, and recycle bins and whatever, which is something that I've heard uh, some some people with addiction do just, just to any means to get money um, and then pot, buy heroin. So like once you do that, the, the thinking is, well, at least these these people will still be taking drugs, which is not the outcome ever, that we would ideally want. But they're doing it in a way that is not putting their lives at, at danger, and it's not hindering their social their social function. And what we've seen is that in Canada and the other countries that have done this is that it actually does work to make these people lead healthier lives in the sense that they can have more um, sustainable employment, more sustainable housing. They're less likely to overdose because keep in mind that they're not just taking prescription heroin in these facilities. They're also being watched by medical staff who can, if they do overdose, they can apply the opioid overdose antidote uh, naloxone or breathing. uh, uh, Like they they can just make sure that they don't actually die from that overdose. And and you, you put that all together and this idea that sounds pretty controversial, pretty provocative at first starts to make sense. It's not something that we will do with every person suffering from opioid addiction. The estimates I've heard is that probably 10 to 15% of the opioid addiction population will benefit from this. The rest can be 
put towards medication assisted treatment or other kinds of treatment that will work for them. But for 10 to 15%, this is probably the only answer simply because for whatever reason, the other treatments aren't going to work and they're still going to keep using heroin. So on this show, we, we pay pretty close attention to the state capitol here in Atlanta. Um, and so I'm curious if you are aware of any other states where they've, they've had state-level initiatives or solutions that have been really effective in addressing this issue. Yeah, so I think the, the first state that really comes to mind is Vermont. Because they had they had a pretty I mean early on you actually read during the when this opioid epidemic was getting a lot of attention in the media you read a lot about Vermont having this big crisis and if you look now look at a map in New England Vermont is actually favoring best in terms of like having the least amount of opioid overdose deaths per populate like one controlling for population because obviously Vermont's also a pretty small state but. It's doing well relative to the other New England states. And what seems to have happened there is that they have this model um, where they've really integrated addiction care with the rest of the healthcare system. They've really managed to bring these two together. And that kind of like structure, structural reform is what a lot of experts say is we need. We need to like because uh, I mentioned the three arms of this earlier, prevention, treatment, and harm reduction. But part of this is also that people have all sorts of other issues related to their addiction. So if um, if you have mental health issues, then you're more likely to have uh, addiction issues as well. If you are facing like socioeconomic despair or existential despair or just have any other anything else that could be impacting your mental health, chances are that will boost your your risk of addiction. So like when you integrate the healthcare system with the mental healthcare system and with the addiction care system, you really begin to addressing these root causes of addiction. And that seems to be what Vermont has been getting at. Now, there are questions of whether they could be doing it better. I think pretty much every place in the US could be doing a much better job at addressing addiction than it is based on the Surgeon General's report. But at least the, the steps they've been making, I've heard, are, are really sound um, based on what experts have told me. So the, the White House released some recommendations. I think today on the day that we're recording, they're going to have some kind of a press conference to, to add more to this. But they had some draft recommendations out about what can be done at the federal level related to opioids. What was your assessment of those recommendations? And could they build on some of these state level successes in places like Vermont? Yeah, so the generally what I the feedback I've seen for these opioid uh, rec- commission recommendations from the White House are that they're pretty good. That the just just to give a very brief overview of what they are, essentially they amount to we need to declare a national emergency on this issue, and the thinking is that that will allow the president to make some executive take some executive actions that will then for example, boost access to treatment or give more guidance to doctors about how they should prescribe opioid painkillers. And yeah, in general, like that's that those are the two arms of like what we need to do to address this crisis, Um, again, based on what I've heard from experts. So it it seems like, yeah, coupled with with some of the action the states are taking, they could really help start address this crisis. Well, yeah, we will be looking forward to to more discussion on solutions related to this. I think in Georgia, we've been a little luckier than some of the Rust Belt states and that the epidemic hasn't hit us quite as hard yet. Um, but it's a good time for state officials to 
be looking at this issue and taking it seriously. And, and so we're going to expand on this conversation more um, as the state considers more options and more action related to this. But um, Armand, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. And, th- and thank you so much for coming on to PeachPod. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so that was Kyle uh, with a uh, a reporter from Vox. I guess we're in the big time now. We can get some uh, Vox folks on our show. But uh, <laughs> Kyle, I think the thing that I found the most interesting about your talk was the fact that there are some pretty like out there ideas for uh, how to handle this crisis. And I mean, I guess that shows how big the crisis is that there are some places that are actually prescribing heroin, which seems like an insane idea. Um, what, what, what did you think about some of the more outlandish ideas to fight this crisis? Cause to me, it kind of feels like this is a sign that we're not putting enough resources in and that we're not exploring just, you know, the more straightforward ways of handling this and we're having to come up with more haphazard ways to deal with it. But Maybe I'm being a little short-sighted and things like prescribed heroin is the answer. I don't know. What What, what are your thoughts? Well, it's definitely, I, th- I think it just speaks to how complicated this issue is that like sort of the old thought on how to deal with drug use disorders is, you know, is that it's a criminal problem and a, is one that, you know, you're either a drug user or you're not. Um, and if you are, then then you deserve some kind of criminal penalty. I, I think that the the more innovative treatment ideas like prescribing heroin or, you know, even some people would consider medically assisted treatment, uh, the, the kind of treatment where you actually use a kind of opioid uh, to replace the use of bad opioids. This is something that, that current HHS secretary and former Georgia congressman Tom Price, uh, he had been critical of this earlier this year when this was a bigger issue. Um, or when this was an issue on on Secretary Price's radar, and you know, it it just shows that that we need a broader way to think about this, and it it may not be this sort of dichotomy of either you're a drug user or you're not. Um, but this is definitely an important issue. This is one that I'm working on some broader reporting for. Um, that's going to contextualize this issue in Georgia. There's been a lot of work by a state senate committee, as we talked about a little bit before, and I've. Um, got some conversations lined up with some folks around the state to get a real Georgia look at this issue and explore some solutions that the state can enact to address this problem. Uh, but with that, I think we'll move on to our second topic of the week. Uh, it's definitely not a light, lighthearted show this week, but for our second topic, we're going to discuss the nuclear threat posed by North Korea um, and the Trump administration's response. So last week, the Washington Post reported that North Korea was further along in their nuclear development program than we had previously thought. Since you know we've received the last intelligence reports on this, uh, it appears that North Korea has the ability to produce a miniaturized nuclear warhead that can fit on the top of their uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. I mean, this is an important step for the North Koreans to be able to take to be able to have nuclear strike capability. Um, Now, there's still additional steps that they need before they could launch a strike against the U.S. Um, They need to have a warhead that can that has a a tip made out of the right material that can survive reentry into the Earth's atmosphere because to for North Korea to launch a missile at the American, you know, at the, at the lower 48, um, they would have to basically launch a missile into space and then, and then bring it back down. Um, but these are, you know, somewhat alarming developments given 
where we thought they were with their nuclear program, that they're a little bit further than we were before. But this is sort of one of the first major international tests for the Trump administration. And uh, Trump responded, Trump gave a pretty memorable response. Uh, Let's play some audio from Trump as he addresses the North Korea crisis. Thank you. North Korea, best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power the likes of which this world has never seen before. All right, so that was not Donald Trump's review of the latest episode of Game of Thrones. That was actually his response to the North Korean nuclear threat. Um, Luke, let's just start there. What do you think about the Trump administration's response, and and how worried are you that we're about to descend into a nuclear crisis with North Korea? I'm not that worried, actually. Um, this kind of fits into Trump's like usual M.O., which is like he goes out and says some really bold thing, and then uh, nothing really happens from it. Um, and, you know, some people have like, compared this to like the Nixonian madman theory, where Nixon like, pretended, he's like, I'm willing to do anything! And then, you know, uh, actually he was like very calmly working through his uh, advisors and through Kissinger and himself being calm behind the scenes. Um, I don't know if Trump's like effectively like trying to do that with this. I mean, he definitely has a lot of generals around him who are a bit more, uh, you know, calm headed in their response and how they look at issues like this. But generally speaking, while this is alarming and I definitely don't want to like underplay this, it also is not that surprising to me. I mean, we got to think, you know, North Korea detonated their first uh, nuclear weapon, I think back in 2006. And like, yeah, it they've was 2006. Been, yeah, like 2006 around there. Um, and I mean, they've been on a pretty, you know, healthy trajectory of getting, you know, getting nuclear weapons and getting a missile. And obviously that's scary, but at the same time, it's one thing to get a bomb that's small enough to fit onto a rocket. It's a whole other exercise to get said rocket into the air and get it to a target <laughs> because that is really hard. Um, and most of their missiles like don't work or you know blow up before they get to their target. I mean, I think there's a decent chance that if they actually even tried to launch a missile at us, and it's like the worst case scenario that like that missile fails. Uh, and I mean, obviously that's still really scary and really bad, but you know, I'm not, I'm not too worried as of now. Um, I think the biggest concern is the example and the precedent that this sets for how the Trump administration responds to such things. Um, because you know, there's going to be a crisis that has a bit more teeth and a bit more, you know, concern behind it. And Trump has pretty much shown yet again, that his first instinct is not great because with North Korea, I mean, they they are not known to be the most stable of regimes around the world and like raising the temperature by saying something that I will admit is incredibly memorable and, you know, uh, copyrightable as Fire and Fury. I don't know if that's the right approach. And so, you know, that, that, would, be, that would be my concern. The interesting thing about this is... Trump is the first American president in my lifetime, really probably the first one in quite a long time where 
his rhetoric doesn't necessarily represent policy positions of the United States. You know, shortly after Trump made the comment about fire and fury, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said basically that Americans should be sleeping soundly and that we are not on the verge of nuclear war with North Korea. And on the Sunday shows, Mike Pompeo, the the director of the CIA, he also said that we are not on the verge of of nuclear war with North Korea, that he didn't have any intelligence that would suggest that North Korea is considering a first strike. And I, th- I mean, I think it's important to point out why that's so like easy for them to say. It's like this is a no-win scenario for everyone involved because it's not like North Korea could successfully strike us and then that knock us out. I mean, it's pretty much a suicide pact. And, you know, the, the, at the end of the day, I guess why I'd say I'm not worried about this all that much is the fact that, like, Kim Jong-un just, like, wants his like the whole reason they have bombs is because he wants to continue to be the ruler of North Korea. And so like by continuing to like threatening everyone and, you know, try to scare everyone, that's how, how he does it in my mind is that's how he thinks he does it is to all the people in North Korea. He's like, look at me, I'm keeping us safe by building all these bombs and threatening the United States with the rock, you know, these (laughs) nuclear weapons. And then for everyone outside that, you know, gives us a little bit of pause if we tried to take them out because even if they did not have nuclear weapons with conventional weapons they could kill people on a scale that we've not seen for a really really long time in the first couple minutes of an armed conflict because North Korea has pretty much for the entirety of his existence as this regime has known that like the way they go out is that like the United States or some other powers attack them and that's how they're going to fall. So they're pretty much like set up to survive a first strike so that they can uh, have retaliatory strikes against anyone that tries to take them out. So, I mean, that's a that's a pretty nasty scenario that I don't even think they want to get into. Yeah, I mean, I think what we know, I, I'm not an international relations expert, but this is sort of based on, on some of the research I did this week, is that we actually think that the Kim regime is actually relatively logical in terms of, it has a goal, like you said, of staying in power. Its bluster around the world isn't necessarily indicative of them wanting to be a first strike power against any other big nation, whether it be the US or Japan or China or South Korea. Um, but that if they are provoked, I think the fear in the international relations community is that North Korea would then strike South Korea. And, and that's an issue of, you know, North Korea can't deliver a, a fatal blow to the U.S. And, and, and topple our country, our government, or anything like that. But they can do really significant damage in South Korea. Um, the other issue here, though, in terms of alliances and in terms of the Trump administration's response and what this means for our allies in the region is that we haven't – it's not clear that we are going – to stick to our alliance with South Korea if in the event that doing so would potentially set the U.S. up to being attacked on our mainland, either either in a territory that we own like Guam or in Alaska or, or in California. The fact that, I mean, what Donald Trump did actually with his fire and fury comment was he said that if the North Koreans made another threat that they would see fire and fury like the world has never seen. And the Kim regime responded pretty much exactly like you would expect them to by threatening to strike Guam. And 
Trump did not level North Korea in that moment. Now, that is a better outcome. I don't think that that's an out. I don't think bombing North Korea is something that Americans should want. But when the Americans say, when the Trump administration and, and our foreign policy establishment says, South Korea, we have your back, but then we don't back up the threats that we make because we've made threats that probably weren't wise to make, then you have to wonder if you're South Korea or Japan, if the North Korean nuclear capability is further along than we thought it was before, are the Americans going to be there to back up the South Koreans, the Japanese, or to what extent do they have to look for look to China, or to what extent do they have to sort of you know, ready their own defenses? And if you can split off the Americans from you know being supportive of the South Koreans, then then I think you do open up the possibility of of greater likelihood of a war between North Korea and South Korea, and that is something that you know unless the Kim regime is worried about retaliation from China or the U.S. over attacking South Korea. You know, they that may be a war that they want to fight more so than than them wanting to take on the United States. But Luke, what would you you know, what are the options here for the U.S. in terms of of dealing with this now that we're in this position? Uh, do you have any ideas about what we should be doing? With this regime, there's very little left that we can do because we've already sanctioned the crap out of them. And at this point, I mean, I think there's a couple more things we could do on the sanctions front, but I can't imagine there's much else. Um, and, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because in a weird way, Trump kind of had the right instinct when he initially got into office when he was, like, pushing China pretty hard to try to help with the North Korean situation. Cause like, that's pretty much the only lifeline that North Korea has. And obviously China has its own policy reasons for not wanting a ally of the United States, a strong ally of the United States right on its border. Um, but I think at a certain point, this bluster is either going to be proven to not actually materialize and that this is just exactly that bluster and North Korea has no actual ability to follow up on its threats. And so, I mean, in that case, there's really not a whole lot the United States can do besides continuing to put pressure on them. You know, I am not in the CIA. I'm sorry, CIA, because you don't put the in front of CIA. So I'm not in CIA, but, you know, uh, I'm sure that CIA, NSA, all our intelligence agencies probably are committing cyber warfare and keep and trying to keep their program from advancing and that's probably why some of their rockets blow up that's just pure speculation on my part but i'm pretty sure that's happening so i mean i would say you know just continue to do that continue to watch it and try to build up any missile defense that we can in the area and watch it because again even if you take nuclear out of it they have the capability of really killing a just astronomical amount of people and you know north korea has a very large military so it would be incredibly difficult to fight them so engaging them directly is not something i think would end well for us because i don't think even the united states has the capability to just knock out everything that north korea has all at once and ensure that there would not be massive casualties because seoul seoul is just like across the border like it would not be hard for north korea to just kill like hundreds of thousands of people so that really ties your hands and it's why it's such a difficult issue because the fact that it is 
so ridiculously close to the major population centers of South Korea. Well, I think to some extent, the Trump administration missed a really golden opportunity on this. So a few weeks back, the uh, UN ambassador Nikki Haley led the Americans in securing a unanimous UN resolution that sanctioned North Korea for two ICBM missile tests that they conducted earlier this year. And then at that point, there was, at least in the eyes of, of former Obama folks who I've I've read some work that they put together this week, that there was this belief that once you get to that point now, the next step is to leverage those sanctions to get some other sort of concession from North Korea. And that Trump coming in with sort of a fresh slate, you know, not being entangled in a lot of other deals in the way that, I mean, the Obama administration's focus for, for much of the second half, or really across much of their entire administration, was the Iran nuclear deal. And I think that they like that that framework. They like that idea of putting in tough sanctions, then using those as leverage to say, we'll lift the sanctions if you roll back some of your nuclear program. Um, and so I, I think that that's where the, the missed opportunity was. It does get a little more complicated with North Korea because we actually had sort of an Iran-like deal with North Korea coming out of the Clinton administration, uh, Bill Clinton negotiated what's called the negotiated framework with the North Koreans in an attempt to block their nuclear program when it was in a much more early, much earlier phase than than what it is now. That agreement fell apart during the early years of the Bush administration. Then the Bush administration watched as North Korea detonated their first nuclear missile and then or nuclear bomb. And then at that point, they wanted to negotiate and try to make a deal um, to try to roll it back and make them not a nuclear-capable power. But by that point, the cat was out of the bag. And this was a problem that the Obama administration never really could get their hands around. Um, but, you know, this was sort of a fresh slate for Donald Trump, and and he had that opportunity to do it. But when you look at the way that he's treated the Iran deal, how he had to be dragged kicking and screaming to approve you know, to, to certify that Iran continues to comply with that deal while also being accused of violating the deal himself. You know, I don't I don't know what you could look at the Trump administration and say, here's something reasonable that they would have done given the positions that they took in the campaign or, or early on in the administration. I mean, I don't know that they have a plan to deal with this. And, and I think that, you know, that, well, I mean, that say, part to I'd me is concerning. To be fair. To be fair, though, you know, like you said, like the Obama administration really could not find the approach that worked for this either. And I think, as you're saying as well, it's like the cat was already out of the bag. And when the Clinton framework broke down, I mean, and they already have a bomb, that's a very different situation than um, Iran. And also, with the there's a big difference between Iran and North Korea, which is... Like, there's not a very legitimate argument that could be made for Iran getting a regime change. Like, they have a pretty legitimate democracy. Like, you know, we have, uh, I, I saw a news report today that, like, the, um, you know, the current leadership in Turkey released the election results before the polls even opened. <laughs> you know, it's just like... You know, you'll hear about that stuff going on in Iran. And right now, while obviously the leadership is not one that is skipping through the roses with uh, the United States, it's a, you know, it's a democracy. It's like they, you know, that is their, 
people making a decision about who their leader should be, whereas North Korea is like an incredibly oppressive dictatorship. So out of those two regimes, like it's a, it's a lot more concerning as North Koreans to be like, hey, the U.S. might like come in and knock on our door and try to take us out, whereas Iran doesn't really have that worry and iran actually has things like an economy you know whereas north korea does not so there's just so much more for iran to gain by making a deal with the united states and they have so much less to lose whereas north korea i mean without a nuke they kind of could lose everything and that's sort of their whole you know their whole idea and their whole operation and how that whole government works is under the assumption that if we don't have a nuke that America could knock on our front door and knock us out. Yeah, it is kind of their insurance policy to ensure that that regime stays in power. Um, but yeah, that that is going to be a very difficult problem for the Trump administration going forward. Um, hopefully we are not on the brink of nuclear war. It, it, it doesn't seem that way, but you know, you kind of never know. Trump prided himself on his unpredictability. Um, and so it is difficult for not only, you know, not only international relations experts to say, but even even the North Koreans probably don't have much of an idea of what the Trump administration is thinking right now. Um, so to some extent, we're just going to have to buckle up and, and hope this thing turns out okay. But with that, I think we'll move on to our third topic of the week, um, another light topic on the docket this week. So this is the, the terrorism in Charlottesville um, that was precipitated by some white nationalist groups that that got together for a rally. Um, so on, on Friday night of last week, a group of some, you know, hundred white nationalists carrying tiki torches marched to the university of Virginia campus and in, in Charlottesville, Virginia, and they were chanting Nazi slogans and, and giving the Nazi salute. And believe it or not, that was just the pregame. That was the pre-rally celebration for the main event, which was a unite the right rally um, that was going to be held in downtown Charlottesville on Saturday afternoon. So on Saturday, as, as demonstrators were gathering, this was a group of neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and, and Ku Klux Klan members. They were gathering to protest a removal of a statue of Robert E. Lee from a park in Charlottesville. Um, and shortly before that rally was supposed to begin, local authorities deemed it an unlawful protest and ordered in police to disperse the crowds. Uh, but when authorities came in to kind of break up these crowds, there were fights between protesters and counter-protesters, uh, people who had showed up to protest the KKK and other white nationalist groups that were that were having their own demonstration. Um, and and this sort of spilled out into a bunch of violent confrontations throughout the city. Um, I saw videos from the event on Twitter. People were beaten with flagpoles and sprayed with pepper spray. It was really a chaotic scene. Later on, the this is the most tragic event of the day. Later on, a group of counter-protesters was marching on a side street near the downtown mall in Charlottesville when a car came barreling down the road that they were marching on. It it hit dozens of people, ran into the back end of a car, um, and then backed up and drove off. Uh, that incident ultimately wound up killing one person. Uh, her name was Heather Heyer. Um, she was somebody who was a part of the counter demonstration against the white supremacist demonstrators. And the driver of the car, his name's James Alex Fields. He was a man from Ohio who was arrested that same day and charged with second degree murder in a count of hit and run. So this Luke was just a really really ugly scene 
in Charlottesville, it was one precipitated by white nationalist demonstrators who wanted to demonstrate that they were the superior race and, and further this argument from the alt-right that has, you know, up until now really only existed in chat rooms and in dark corners of the internet for at least the last 10 or 15 years or so. What were your thoughts just sort of observing uh, the chaos in Charlottesville? I think my first thought is the fact just how we all knew, you know, because, you know, we're both from the South, so we knew that there was a very deep racist element that still remained in the South, and it's something that I had always thought until the past couple years that still a lot of problems there, definitely not perfect, definitely not a colorblind nation by any means, but I felt like we were going in the right direction, you know, that, like, it was becoming, each year, it was becoming less okay, to talk about these things, to protest and to support um, Confederate monuments, like all that kind of stuff. Like it felt increasingly that like, if you're doing this, you are getting more and more marginalized. Whereas now it is happening so much. And we're seeing so many examples of these guys coming out that it just worries me that, you know, maybe we underestimated how bad it truly was. I'm hoping that, we have been right about how bad it was and that this is just like a last gasp of these guys and, you know, Trump having a president who openly espouses very racist views and appoints very racist people to very high positions, such as Attorney General Jeff Sessions. So I'm hoping that this is going to flare this thing back up to a point where everyone realizes that it's a problem and we have to combat it. Um, But I'm just deeply concerned that it's gotten to this point and I'm hoping that um, we can come up with a way to combat this more effectively because it's pretty obvious that the measures that we've been trying to take in educating uh, our children and in getting people to condemn these views and actively fight against those who promote them have been just half measures and we're going to have to work a lot harder to uh, effectively combat this because I didn't think that something on this scale could happen, but it has. And I'm sure, unfortunately, now that this is just the beginning of something we're going to be seeing again and again for the next several years, if not longer. Yeah, I mean, part of what we see with this is that Donald Trump has really enabled white supremacists and other groups like this to operate more out in the open. Um, it's not necessarily that he's up there as a white nationalist himself, but he he does just kind of give the wink and nod in a way that makes these people feel as though they have found their champion in a politician who now just happens to be the president of the United States. Uh, the you know former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, he was at this rally in Charlottesville, and, and he talked about how you know, this is what the white nationalists voted for. They voted for Donald Trump so that these views could come back out into the open and so that they could sort of regain their power, reclaim their authority in American society. And and this really, you know, didn't put Trump in a good spot. And then he sort of swung and missed at his first statement in terms of condemning this. He He made a statement on Sunday, the day after the protest, saying, uh, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides, on many sides. He he both sides 
white supremacy. Yeah, I just I could not believe that because you know I obviously watched the video of when he said that. It's just like the on many sides part was obviously like added on, like he added that on, and it's just it's just so incomprehensible because it was pretty clear that the guys that showed up in military uniforms with, like, clubs were the ones, and weapons, since, you know, Virginia is an open carry state, like, it's pretty clear they were the ones that were really pushing the violent element of this. Yeah, just real quick to finish up on Trump, that, I mean, he does end up in the right place on Monday. Um, On Sunday, the White House released a statement clarifying what Donald Trump was trying to say, saying that his statement, of course, included white supremacists, the KKK and neo-Nazis, but it referred to him as the president. It it wasn't a direct quote from Trump himself. And and so on Monday, uh, Trump finally came around and made the statement that he should have made on Saturday. Uh, We have audio of that. Here that is. To anyone who acted criminally in this weekend's racist violence you will be held fully accountable. Justice will be delivered. As I said on Saturday, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence. It has no place in America. And as I have said many times before, no matter the color of our skin, we all live under the same laws. We all salute the same great flag, and we are all made by the same almighty God. We must love each other, show affection for each other, and unite together in condemnation of hatred, bigotry, and violence. We must rediscover the bonds of love and loyalty that bring us together as Americans. Racism is evil. And those who cause violence in its name are criminals and thugs, including the KKK, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other hate groups that are repugnant to everything we hold dear as Americans. We are a nation founded on the truth that all of us are created equal. Um, So, yeah, so that's Donald Trump from Monday. But but I want to talk a little bit about you know, he got a lot of heat, even from Republicans who, not all of them, but at least a few of them might have some incentive to also look at the sympathizers to white nationalists and see some sort of political upside to not condemning them openly. Um, but, you know, but many, many Republicans that I saw over the weekend criticized Trump for not deliberately calling out what the problem was, which was white supremacy and these groups that were promoting these ideas. And it stood out to me, not that Trump is necessarily espousing all these ideas himself, but it but it is interesting that his first political instinct was to try to soften the blow against white supremacists in a way that I think is even damaging to the Republican Party, party broadly. And I think if you're a Republican elected official this weekend watching Trump kind of fumble around with this statement, you had to sit there and wonder for a second, you know, when is Donald Trump going to choose the right thing or even the thing that is expedient to his party over the thing that is expedient to him and his base? Well, I mean, this is not surprising, though, because Donald Trump has done this every single time something has come up like this, is that there are a couple key elements in his base 
that no matter what happens, he won't he won't let them you know go. He won't let them go, even if it's very obviously a political issue that they're the loser on. He's going to side with them, and so this is just one example. Because the other example we can point to, and you know, in no means am I comparing the two groups, but the only likewise thing they have is the fact that they're both in his base. Is just like with the transgender order that only makes sense to you if you think that Trump is trying to appease the evangelical group in his base, and that he. Time and time again, even though he very clearly has no religious views at all, um, he. Will, I mean, I think he worships himself, but yeah, but you know, you can't that. really count that as a religion. But you know, like he will very often if there's an issue where he can, like, oh, I can help out the evangelical base, he will do it, and he'll do it in the hardest way possible. And he'll do things that other politicians were not willing to do, like trying to get rid of the Lyndon Johnson Amendment that, you know, prevented churches from donating to political organizations. Like, no other Republican politician was willing to do it. Sure, they wanted to do it, and they told the evangelicals they wanted to do it, but they'd never do it. Whereas Trump would do it, because he knows that that is like a loyal constituency of his, for whatever reason, that I cannot understand as someone who was raised in evangelical churches. I do not understand how they can stand by Donald Trump. It's like the biggest confusion of my life, to be honest. I don't understand how it's possible, but it is. And he's been incredibly loyal to them in the same way that he's been loyal to other groups. And, you know, that got him elected. And for whatever reason, he believes that the racist alternative right people, the KKK, the neo-Nazis are a group that he has to keep in, you know, he has to appease. And that if he does not appease them, he thinks that like he's going to lose, <laughs> which, you know, is very, very strange because I don't know. I, I, I've been confounded by this president as, as many people have been, but it's just, he seems to just count those folks in a group that if he does not keep them 100%, he, he's going to lose all his political power. Well, let's get off Trump a little bit and, and talk about this issue more broadly. One of the the realizations out of really out of both political parties as it relates to this is that the the act committed by the driver who who drove into a crowd and, and killed one demonstrator, um, that is considered to be broadly across the political spectrum an act of domestic terrorism. And I've been really guilty of this this is fine bias through a lot of the Trump administration, but but seeing someone who showed up at an alt at an alt-right rally then adopt a a terrorism technique that we've seen from ISIS in, in Europe and, and across the Middle East, um, the use of a car as a weapon to try to kill innocent civilians that was something that was really disturbing to me and it and it sort of got me thinking about beyond the fact you know the rhetorical argument of is or is this not considered domestic terrorism because it's perpetrated by white people i think there is there does need to be room in this conversation for trying to figure out what we do as a society and as a government about how to actually combat this. I mean, I mean, we have fairly sophisticated techniques for combating terrorist organizations overseas. And, you know, a lot of the way in which we can do that is, is the fact that 
terrorists overseas who are not American citizens don't have the same rights under the Bill of Rights as American citizens do. But what do we do about groups like these at home that, you know, this is one instance, but if we have another instance like this where we see techniques or tactics that are similar to what you would see from from terrorist groups overseas, what legally and, and, and from a domestic security perspective can we actually do about this? I mean, it's an incredibly difficult situation because what what we have been experiencing, I think, is not indirectly related to the viewpoint that a lot of people in the United States started to get post-1965, which is, we've done everything we need to do on racism, good on us, and this issue's done. And that continued, that feeling continued for quite some time, and then... We had Barack Obama be elected, and that made it only worse that, oh, racism's gone, <laughs> you know, we are a color, colorblind nation, and we don't need to worry about any of that anymore. And it's very clear that that's not true. And I think what we're going to have to do is ha- we're going to have to make it a commitment of the federal and state governments to combat this because, you know, you mentioned that we have very sophisticated techniques in combating radical islam around the world they've not been all that successful (laughs) you know the fact that we're like still fighting isis and that there's a ton of people that are still being recruited by isis all over the world proves that our counter insurgency counter um islamic extremists you know rhetoric our efforts to counter that has not worked very well since i I would interrupt and just say in 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 terms of an ideology, I think it's been difficult. I think in terms of on the ground, we have rolled back ISIS from from territory in Iraq. I, oh yeah, I even, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not what we're talking about here. Territory. We're not talking. We, like we can't we can't like get tanks and like go after these guys because one they don't have territory yet, thank God. Um, but like even assuming they did, that would be pretty difficult to do. Um, well, they're also still American citizens. So I think right, I think that's this why. is where. But that, that's what I'm saying. What, what I'm trying to get to is the point is that like there 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 have been efforts to promote their ideology in very blatant ways in the education system in the United States, where we have seen a lot of examples of textbooks trying to whitewash slavery um, in ways that are obviously unacceptable to anyone who even thinks about the issue for longer than 30 seconds um so i mean it's going to be difficult and it's going to be something that we're going to have to openly confront rather than trying to passively think we did everything we need to do all the way back in 1965 and we've done a good job and we elected barack obama as president so racism's not a problem like that's not sufficient so if we're going to attack this thing it's going to have to be very very aggressively and it's not going to be easy because you're dealing with a population that already feels isolated, that already feels like the you know world doesn't care about them, and so if you start really bringing down the, uh, to use a term our president would use, the fire and fury of the federal government, that's not necessarily gonna have a positive effect on them either. And so, I mean, it's it's it it feels like an intractable problem. I feel like there is a solution. I am biased in that I think more education and more discussion is always a way to work on it. Um, but it's going to be a long, long-term long process because as we saw with 
the uh, you know racist scumbags that were out in Virginia, like a lot of them are pretty old, and you know, like they're pretty, you know, they're they they've already gone through the education system, and they had these views, and they were allowed to simmer and manifest in this way, and like it's pretty hard once someone's you know 25 30 to like start changing their viewpoints especially if they're so extreme as these guys are so i i don't know what we do uh with that and i'm you know we definitely need to start treating them like domestic terrorism if that is what the groups continue to do because as far as the ideology and what's at the root of it it's definitely as dangerous as some of the terrorist organizations that we are fighting in the middle east if not more dangerous because it's um folks that are actually already in america and have connections to you know the united states in a way that no terrorists from the middle east could have if they came over here and tried to start a cell yeah there's other things that complicate this too i don't know if you saw this but Uh, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe was asked why the police didn't do more to either separate the demonstrators and the counter demonstrators or or to do more to bring peace to Charlottesville on Saturday. And McAuliffe said that these, you know, white supremacists, they had better weapons than the Virginia State Police did. They, I saw photos of uh, people who looked like they were in the National Guard. And if you didn't know any difference, you might have thought that these demonstrators were actually, you know, federal or state law enforcement authorities because they had, you know, they had they had big long guns. They had, uh, I mean, they they had a they had a full. There were some of them that had full slates of military equipment. And what you do as a law enforcement agency about that when you have what is essentially a small militia marching through your city. Um, while also being in close proximity to a bunch of counter demonstrators who are also really just kind of innocent bystanders, um, you know, that becomes a really difficult issue too, because, you know, Virginia is an open carry state. These people have second amendment rights, but it is clearly a situation that if, if any one of these people lost their cool and, and started a firefight with either the cops or, or some demonstrators that this could have been a much, much deadlier day in charlottesville than uh than we saw i I, unfortunately at this point i'm just not asking the question of if i'm asking the question of when because these events have obviously been escalating so at this point you can buy an open carry with the ability to get weapons that are oftentimes better than what standard issue police weapons are it's kind of inevitable circumstance that this is going to happen yeah usually we would like to uh (laughs) to bring some solutions to this show but but on on both of the the these last two topics that we've talked about this i mean these are difficult difficult problems to deal with um these are not issues from from north korea to uh to the issue of of combating white supremacy that we've seen a lot of leadership on out of politicians i mean we've seen rhetoric but but in, in terms of actually getting some real policy ideas on the table, um, these are ones that definitely still require some work. But with that, I, I think we'll leave that topic there and move on to a little mini topic slash end note for the week. And that is a, a follow up on an article that I wrote about uh, the Netroots Nation conference that was held in Atlanta 
this weekend um, at the conference, Stacey Evans, one of the Democratic candidates for governor, um, she was invited to speak at this conference. But early on in her speech, protesters stood up and shouted her down and were chanting and holding up signs and, and distracting from Evans' speech throughout the 10 minutes of time that she was given in her speaking slot at this conference. And so Evans ultimately didn't really get to make an uninterrupted speech. Um, This was something that that blew up on Twitter on Saturday. Uh, Republicans definitely had their fun in in watching the Democrats be uh, a dumpster fire of a party, at least for a day, in terms of this this conflict between protesters and Evans. Um, But but it was interesting. Protesters claimed that they were opposing Evans' views on school choice and school privatization policies. They passed out a flyer, which the details of which were a mess, but but did seem to point to votes that Evans had made, where she had embraced school choice policies, whether they be the the student scholarship organizations, the the parent trigger law, or the opportunity school district constitutional amendment um, that ultimately failed. They they argued after the fact that that is what that they were protesting, uh, both to the media and on Twitter, um, and they claimed that because of Evans' views on these subjects, they they didn't feel that she should be invited to speak at Netroots because of that. In responding to the protest, uh, Stacey Abrams, the other Democratic candidate for governor, uh, she said that the mantra "trust Black women" was a historic endorsement of the value of bringing marginalized voices to the forefront, not a rebuke of Stacey Evans' race. But the interesting thing that I noted, I wrote an article about this that we'll link to in the show notes, was that Abrams, in that same breath, did not explain why Evans, someone who was raised in poverty, who overcame that poverty, who was a first-generation college student, uh, why she also as a woman, was not a marginalized voice worth hearing from. Um, And then on Monday, she elaborated on that statement, but basically just made a a fuller version of the statement that she made after the the protest on Saturday. Um, Luke, did you catch any of this uh, from Netroots? And and what did you think? Yeah, I definitely have been following this. And of course, I had friends that were there. Um, From all of my young Dems friends, pretty much it's, it's been pretty consistent that everyone was really frustrated by this because we don't want the primary to turn into a nasty fight like we had between Hillary and Bernie. Like we just don't want it. We're very, very against having it. Um, and I mean, I heard that from both supporters of Abrams and supporters of Evans. I mean, my thing is there's a time and a place and a person to use these tactics against and I don't think either Stacey Abrams or Stacey Evans have have reached that point. You know, not neither one of them have done anything that would constitute this treatment by Democratic voters and you know progressives. Because one, many of the votes that Evans was being criticized for taking, Abrams had taken similar votes and sometimes the same votes as was on that flyer. So it's just like if you're gonna attack someone on the issues, well, actually, well, real quick, let me correct all the all those votes on the flyer. Abrams voted no. Evans voted yes in support of some. Well, of these they hit her on policies. OSD though, and OSD Abrams and Evans voted for the OSD Part B. 
Yeah. So, yeah. That is so great. that I was, I was including that in there. So, you know, it's again, the, the flyer wasn't all that specific. So it was kind of hard to know what all they were including and not including. Um, well, it was a little selective, right? It, it is worth noting that, uh, you know, education policy is about more than just these school choice issues. There's a, a relatively small share of students that are served by private schools in the state. Um, and and I think it's worth noting that the, the activists in this situation did selectively omit the 2017 vote on the Opportunity School District. Um, this was a bill that both Evans and Abrams voted for. Abrams encouraged the caucus to support it because she said that this version was less punitive and more collaborative than the previous version. Uh, but that was not the view of progressives in the state. Better Georgia was very critical of this bill, um, and they did not want to see it passed. They continued the, the criticism that they had from it as a constitutional amendment. Um, and so this was not a... A, a unified view among progressives that this was a good idea, at least here in the state. Um, yeah, you know, it's also worth noting that beyond the issues of school choice, uh, both while both Evans and Abrams have been in the legislature, the education funding formula has not been fully funded since before the recession between 2010 and 2014. That formula was underfunded by over a billion dollars statewide. Um, and it's also true that the funding formula hasn't been meaningly reformed since it was enacted in the 1980s. It still doesn't provide more resources to school districts that educate more kids uh, who come from poverty. It's an issue that, that nobody is perfect on and, and one that definitely needs some work. My criticism of, of the view of the activists in this instance is that these issues are complicated and they are ones that we've been debating at the state level for a very long time. And like them, I have my frustrations about places where we have not made enough progress, but to sort of selectively grab a few votes, votes that I don't think meaningfully represent the differences between the two candidates, and then to say that for some reason, one of the candidates doesn't have a right to speak at an event that she was invited to speak at, that to me seemed a little narrow-minded um, and, and didn't do service to progressives who want to see a Democratic governor in Georgia in 2018. That was my frustration, and, and that's why I wrote an article about it. Yeah, I mean, we can do hours on this issue, but I think we don't have the time to do that. So the main thing I'm going to say is, at the end of the day, unless someone else gets in the race, one of these Stacys is going to be the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in 2018. And if we decide that we're going to start doing these scorched earth tactics this early. I cannot even imagine how ugly this race is going to get in May, by May of 2018. And we are sitting here in August of 2017. And if we do that, then we are handing the governor's mansion to a Republican. Because if we just beat the heck out of each other in this way, this early for this entire race, then no matter who wins we're going to be, the other side's going to be mad in a way that they're not going to be able to come back from. And that is not going to help us win the governor's mansion. And both of these candidates have different views and they have very legitimate views and that should be debated between the two candidates. And neither one of them should be silenced in any venue. And so I'm hoping that we can uh, get our heads in the game and focus towards the actual enemy. And it's not 
either one of the Stacys. It is Casey Cagle or Hunter Hill or Michael Williams or whoever comes out of that uh, insane primary. Um, as far as Democrats go, obviously. My Republican friends will disagree with me on who the enemy is, but as far as Democrats go, <laughs> that is that is what we're focusing on. I mean, I don't think either is the enemy, but I, I do think that there are clear differences. Well, okay, politically speaking, that, that politically gonna, speaking, they are yeah. the enemy. Political towards, opposition. Yes. Yes. Um, They're not enemies the, of the, the other, or anything. The other, uh, the other thing that should make Democrats a little nervous is that both Stacey's have been serving in the House together for quite some time. I'm sure that if they have a lot of incentive to get aggressive with each other and nasty with each other, that we're going to learn some things about the inner workings of the house that are probably better left private, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully we, we see a fair race, a race based on ideas and not a race where either of these candidates tries to bury one another. With that, I think we'll leave that there for the week and uh, we will talk to you again next week. Bye guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.